Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to this Muslim Girls podcast. This is Noor. Today I have with me Sara Al Saidi, who is a doctoral student in the counseling psychology program at Teachers College, Columbia University. After working with survivors of domestic violence at the Arab American Family Support Center, Sarah began her master's degree in mental health counseling. Her interest in cultural diversity and identity led her to work in multiple nonprofits, organizations where she had the opportunity to interact with racial and ethnic minorities, survivors of domestic violence, and incarcerated individuals. Through these experiences, Sada first began to develop her research interest in stigmatization, prejudice, and discrimination among both racial and ethnic minority groups, as well as her interest in the influences of culture and religion on mental health stigma and help-seeking behavior. She is the co-founder of the Mental Health Awareness Conference at Teachers College, dedicated to learning about barriers to help-seeking and multicultural competencies among ethnic and racial minorities. In her free time, she enjoys nonfiction writing, photography, and quality time with her family over a cup of Yemeni tea. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you on. So can we begin with just, in your own words, how this area of study sparked your interest, um, how you went about deciding this is what you want to do, and obviously you know, how you saw that there was a need um, for this or that there was a significance about bringing this type of awareness and knowledge into your community? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's interesting because, as you know, I'm Yemeni-American, so I grew up with my four uncles who were very close in age with me, so we, we were more like brother and sister. So they would always tease me and say, oh, Sarah, you're going to become a lawyer, you know, because I would always argue with them. And so I had it in my mind that I wanted to be a lawyer for the longest time. And it, was, it wasn't until high school where I interned and uh, in a lawyer's office, and there were also social workers and therapists working in the same office. And I found myself time and time again leaning towards them and sort of wanting to work with them more than with the lawyers. And so it was at that point that I started to realize, like, I'm really interested in psychology. I'm really interested in this thing that we don't talk about, that I didn't talk about growing up in my home. You know, there's so, there's so many experiences of trauma in our community. There's so many experiences of abuse, but we don't talk about those things. And so mental health became so important to me. It was something that I was intrigued. Um, and then I think as I, you know, I went to Sarah Lawrence and I was a nonfiction major um, and I was doing a lot of writing. But then at the same time, I was taking a lot of developmental classes in psychology. And I think, you know, learning more and more about these things, I was more interested in, okay, this is sort of like the, the framework. But how do you apply this to ethnic and racial minorities? You know, how does this work for Muslims? You know, I was thinking of my own family. You know, this might work with maybe a white person. But how do you apply this? How do you adapt this so that it can work with Muslim Americans or Arab Americans, whatever it is? Um, and I think it was that point, those questions that I started to ask myself that, you know, made me interested in, you know, multicultural psychology, um, and really pushed me to to go into the mental health field. How was it going into this field? Like, what was the response of those around you? And also, um, 
you know, in, in relation to the Arab Muslim community, why is there a disconnect with mental health awareness? Um, in your opinion, is it because it's not accessible or accepted that, you know, this is the reason why it's not prevalent in our communities? Yeah, I mean, it's multiple reasons, you know, mental health in general is stigmatized, right? For boys in Arab culture, um, you know, I'm speaking mostly from Arab culture because that's the research that I've done. And that's also what I'm most closely related to. Um, but this can sometimes be, you know, generalized for Muslim population. But for boys, you know, you know, we they grow up and we say, don't talk about your feelings. Don't don't you know, like keep it in. Be a man. Be a man. And so they they grow up and internalize this and feel like you know their mental health is not important or they're the man of the house. And so if they're feeling stress, if something's on their mind, if they're not feeling well, then you know there's all this pressure on them. For women, on the other hand, you know we make them feel like oh you're just exaggerating or oh you're just looking for attention. Right. And so it's stigmatizing for both men and women, but in different ways, you know, and I think the pushback that I got in my family was they were worried, you know, people, you know, when you think about mental illness, people think dangerous. You know, I think that was my mom's first uh, first reaction, you know, when I uh, applied for uh, internship and I was going to be working in an inpatient unit, right, at a hospital setting. And so this was with a severe mental ill population. And this is what I really wanted to do because I wanted to I wanted to understand what does bipolar disorder look like, right? I know what all the stigma, you know, I, I know what people say, but what does it look like? What are the symptoms like, you know? Um, what does schizophrenia actually look like? How does it how does it feel? How does how does it impact the patient? And so when I first applied for this internship, my mom was, you know, freaking out because she was worried for me, you know? And then I also got the pushback from my community where they would say, "Oh, Sarah, you're going to become crazy like them." You know, sadly, that that's how, you know, they, they have this misconception, this confusion that it's contagious, that mental illness is contagious. But they don't realize that your mental and physical well-being is interconnected, you know, and everyone experiences some type of mental issue as, at any point in their life. It's so prevalent, but we don't talk about it. And, and that's the problem, you know, so it's stigmatized from the community. So I got that pushback where people were, you know, worried about me. Am I going to get sick or am I going to get hurt? Um, and then you ha I have my, you know, grandfather who's, you know, a much older generation who just kind of didn't understand what is therapy? Why, why, why would that even work? You know, it's not something that he grew up with. But alhamdulillah, you know, I think I, I've been able to, um, you know, take him into my world a little bit, you know, and bring him to conferences and talk to him. And he's been able to open up and, you know, say like, you know what, this is important. You know, I'm so glad you're doing this because we, we, we never had this, you know. And so many other amazing professionals are doing amazing things for the Muslim community. And I think that's what's opening the doors, that we're talking about it, right? Because I think, you know, uh, one of the best ways to defeat stigma is the contact approach, right? Because you can educate someone on mental health and mental illness, what it means, and that's important, right? And that's great. You can also, you know, say like, don't do this, don't, you know, don't be stigmatizing, and 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 that's fine too. But I think one of the best approaches is the contact approach, where someone with a, a mental illness or someone with some type of issue themselves can come and speak about it and tell you, this is my experience. This is how I experience anxiety. This is how anxiety affects me. This is how depression affects me, whatever it is, you know, and, and normalize it. And I, I think even in certain circumstances, people would find others' experiences to be relatable, um, you know, with bipolar disorder, like especially depression and anxiety, etc. It's very um, common, more common than we think. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, in one of the studies that I was working on, one of the most interesting things 
was positive feedback. Um, you know, some of the participants, you know, maybe they were experiencing some de depression and they were going in for therapy and they didn't want to tell anyone because they were ashamed. And then, you know, maybe a month later they bump into their friend and their friend says like, wow, you, you see, you seem good. Like, you, you know, you seem better, you know, alhamdulillah. And that feedback made them feel like, you know what, I should go to therapy. Therapy is actually helping me. So that, that was something that's also really helpful to, you know, breaking that stigma. How often can you find people who are comfortable enough to share their experiences and share that they've, you know, sought out help and benefited from it? Because I think even if someone did have a positive experience, they'd still be adamant about sharing it. Yeah. I mean, you know what it is? It starts with one person, you know, and they, they make a circle and they... They make it, you know, safe and comfortable for someone else. Even if you've never been to therapy, you can still find the value in it, and you can still, you know, say that you appreciate it or think that it's good. Um, but you know, it, it's difficult. Like I, I, in in our community, it starts with one person. You know, one person opens up about something, and they're the brave one, and then everyone kind of feels comfortable after that. Right. You know, it's it's a very interesting point you make because. Um, I did a qualitative study a few years ago with a, a partner of mine, and it focused on the Yemeni American females um, in our uh, county, and it looked into the uh, educational opportunities. But really in the study, what we found was that there was this concept of social, social imitation in which if someone kind of, you know, paved the road or started uh, a movement or did something that was, you know, unacceptable at that time, after a while, people slowly started to follow it and started to do the same thing we saw it with education we saw it with driving um when we saw it with women uh entering the workforce now i'm sure sada you know more than i do about uh the way that our community views um mental health issues and how they react to it i think you can agree that oftentimes everything is kind of questioned by um you know how strong is your faith or your iman um is it a seher is it a ayn which is you know the evil eye but it's rare that it's ever approached or um, looked at from the lens of a professional, like clinical um, viewpoint to see if it's something deeper than that or, you know, that possibly it's not an ayn or sahir or, you know, a lack of iman. What is what is your opinion on this? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's that's one of the issues, right? Because, um, you know, also as someone who is both Muslim and American and Yemeni, um, I think it's really important that I don't, you know, when someone says to me, I think my daughter is ill because of Ain, right? The evil eye. It's really important to me that I don't say to that mother, you're wrong. That's not scientifically proven. You're wrong. Because you know what? It's in the Quran. It's mithkur in the Quran. And it is possible. But what I say is, it's not always because of that, right? Look at all the options. You want to do ruqya? I support you. But also make sure your daughter is seeing a therapist. Make sure you're doing everything you can. Because I think that, you know, a lot of psychologists who don't understand Islam, who don't understand Muslim culture, um, can, can invalidate the experiences of uh, Muslims and say, you know, you're just being ignorant. But the reality is that there's truth in some of those beliefs. It's just that, you know, it, not to that extreme. Right. So it's about it's about validating that, not shutting someone down and saying, you know, don't okay you believe that that's that's true and that's valid but let's also explore this let's also explore seeing a doctor because you know there's a lot of hadiths and, and there's a lot of um ayahs that talk about you know doing everything that you can right you know some people think that you know you just have to go in blindly or you know sabr means have patience 
and, you know, just bear it. No, you know, in Islam, Allah wants you to, you know, do something and, and be active, right? So I think that's, that's an important piece because you're right, that comes up in the, in the research and that came up in our study as well. You know, what are the different, you know, um, factors that they, you know, a lot of Muslim or Arab Americans attribute, you know, like what do they think are the causes? And, you know, there's the biomedical, there's, you know, that they, you know, mental illness is caused because of, you know, genetics or some kind of biological issue or maybe trauma. And that's true. And then there's the religious, you know, aspect, which is like, oh, it's a test from God. So you must endure it and bear it. Or it's a punishment from God. So you have to bear it so that you can, you know, remove your sins. And, you know, it's really about, you know, changing the narrative, right? Like, you know, the belief is not wrong. It's how it's being interpreted. So the, the, I focus, I like to focus more on the interpretation. How are you interpreting that? Did, is that what Islam really means by that? You know, and I think once you approach our community in that way, then they're able to say, you know what? Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, you, you understand me, you get me, you know? And so, yeah, you're right. Maybe, you know, maybe I will try um, therapy. Maybe I will try seeing a doctor. Right, keeping both methods of healing. I think that's such an important point you just made. Uh, to move on a little bit, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you hoped um, to get out of this research that you've been uh, working on and if the ultimate goal for you is to be in the field as a therapist. Yeah, so when I started the program, I went in first as a master's student at Columbia. Um, and with the master's degree, all I really wanted was to be a therapist, right? I wanted to be a Muslim therapist who, you know, can understand the cultural barriers, who can work in the Muslim community, because I wanted to be that person who has the cultural competence, right? And that, and that was my main goal. And I think, um, you know, I was mostly interested in mental health stigma when I first started the program. And, you know, one of the things that we started, I co-founded with um, a few other students at Columbia is the Mental Health Awareness Conference. And this is a yearly conference. We've had two successful years. And, you know, we basically have people come in um, who do research on different ethnic and racial minority groups. And they come in and we invite the community. It's not just for graduate students. It's not, you know, it's for the community. And we talk about mental health, you know, and what are the barriers and, and we try to break that stigma. And, and that's been a majority of my work. But I think over time, you know, after I graduated with my master's degree, Alhamdulillah, I applied and I was accepted to the PhD program, which is, you know, one of the most difficult things that I have, honestly have to say I'm doing right now. MashaAllah, good for you. That's amazing. Thank you. It's, it's something that I've worked towards because I realized that, you know, I can be a therapist and I can make, I can make a few changes, right? I can make an impact in, in someone's life. And that's important to me and that's valuable. But I realized when I was in the program is that there's no research on us. You know, like there's no, there's nothing that I, there's, there is, but there's not enough, right? I want like, that's, that's the problem. There's not enough for me to point to and say, there's a need in my community. There's not enough on, you know, experiences of discrimination, right? Especially with the presidential election and like recent political climate. There's not enough saying there's a need in the Muslim community. Women are being attacked. And I think, you know, as I applied for the PhD program, my interest sort of shifted where I wanted to, you know, not only be a therapist and do therapy, I wanted to start doing research um, and use the research really like I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a fan of being an academic and keeping my knowledge only in academia. You know, I'm completely against that. I think anything that I do, I want to see it impact the community. Otherwise, I'm not I'm not doing something. I'm not doing not giving back. 
you know, so I, I always like to, whenever I design a study or I'm thinking of something, I'm always thinking about, okay, how am I going to apply it? Because I think a lot of researchers do great research, wonderful research, but it stops there. And that's not enough, right? Because who's going to read that? Someone who's educated, someone who, you know, has access, but who really needs it? You know, how are we going to make it accessible to them? So that, that's really, I think, in my point of my career right now, that's really where I'm at. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, like my, my research interest has sort of shifted, especially around the political climate, around experiences of discrimination. You know, there's a lot of studies on experiences of discrimination with several ethnic and racial minority groups. But, you know, for Muslim Americans, um, it's, it's still minimal. You know, it's not enough. Um, and, that's, and that's kind of where I'm, I'm shifting and gearing towards because I want to know how does it impact you know, especially recently, I've been more interested in women, and especially women who physically appear as Muslim or, you know, observe the hijab or, you know, physically appear Muslim through any, any of their clothing um, or any identifying factors. And, you know, how does it impact their self-esteem? How does it impact their sense of belonging? Because I was born and raised in America. The only home I know is America. And it's isolating to feel like I don't belong here. And so a lot of this comes from my own personal experiences um, but at the same time, I want to, I want to see more research on this because we need to point to that need so that there's more services towards our community. Right. Hey, Drew Scott here. And I'm Jonathan Scott reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American family insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. So, Sada, I want to get into your research a little bit. I know you talk about stigma in the first study you did. And if anyone's interested in learning more about that, um that research uh sarah actually talks about it in an episode uh on the podcast between arabs um which is uh, hosted by the incredible noor goda who i look up to so much <laughs> um it's actually no longer in production but i believe it's still available on itunes so make sure you check it out after you finish listening to this episode but um now you have this new study and is it still ongoing or has it been completed so this study is complete. Um, inshallah, we're trying to publish it um, as soon as possible. We're still working on um, the manuscript at this point, but we've collected the data. It was a qualitative study. Um, and I always say, like, I tend to be a qualitative girl. And I think that's because, you know, when there's not enough research on something, you have to have um, interviews. You have to have conversations with people. The, that data is so rich you know, and you form and you form sort of like a foundation. And then after that, you can do, you know, larger studies with 200 participants. Um, and I think that's possible. But right now, at this point, at least in the research that I'm doing, I tend to focus on qualitative research, because I want to hear about your experience. I want you I want to hear your words, I want to be there with you and understand, right. And I think that's kind of what makes the research that I'm doing unique. Um, but this study was qualitative. I did interviews with 14 um, Arab American women. Um, and, you know, I actually use the word Arab and Mina interchangeably, you know, Middle Eastern, North African. But there are differences, right? And so for my study, it actually is Mina American woman. Um, and so anyone who identifies as Arab, Middle Eastern, and North African. 
Um, and, you know, I asked these women about, you know, first of all, how do they understand their race, you know, on, on different like forms, how do they categorize their race? Because as you know, in the US, we're, you know, categorized as white. And while some of us might pass and reap some white privilege, majority of us don't, you know, and simply by wearing the hijab, you're, you're stripped of any white privilege that you, you have, right? And majority of, most, uh, of, of Arab and, and MENA Americans are not actually white. And so that there's like that, there's that paradox, you know, and it's, it's conflicting. Um, and so I asked them first about that and their experience around that and, and then their experience around their ethnic identity and how they identify and then their religious identity, because not all the participants are Muslim in my study. They're, um, they just identify as MENA American. Um, so, you know, I, and, and what was interesting about that is that they're the non-Muslim, uh, MENA Americans and the Muslim MENA Americans had such similar experiences, um, even though, you know, some of the participants didn't even identify with Islam. Um, and then I asked them about, you know, after their religious identity, I asked them about experiences of discrimination they might have had. And, you know, what do they attribute it to when they experience those, that, those experiences? You know, is it, do they think it's because of their race? Do they think it's because of their religion? What do they think it's, or is it because of their gender? You know, I wanted to, I wanted to know about that. What do they think of it? Um, and then lastly, you know, how does it impact them? You know, how do they, how do they um, make sense of all of those experiences? In your findings, were there any significant trends or interesting conclusions that you want to discuss? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. This is a very interesting study, and I can honestly talk to you about it for hours. Um, and, I, and I try so hard sometimes not to go into so many detail. But I think one of the most, um, you know, not shocking for me, but one of the most sort of like eye-opening um, is, you know, one of the domains that came up, which, uh, we called effects of marginalization. And, uh, it was this aspect of internalization, right? So like 93% of our participants talked about internalizing the negative attitudes about their identities. Um, and so saying things like, you know, maybe it's our fault, you know, maybe, maybe it's because we do this, right? Um, and, you know, I actually have a quote from one of the participants who said, uh, at one point, I started hating my identity. I didn't want to be Arab or Egyptian because I didn't want to be treated like I was different. I had no self-esteem. I had thick eyebrows, a bubbly nose, and hairy arms and legs. I would straighten my hair and cry over it because I wanted to be a white girl. I knew that I was not the example of beauty. And, you know, this is just one example of the many of participants who talked about similar things, you know, sort of internalizing these things and, and all this, um, you know, lo lowering of self-esteem and confidence. And I think that's kind of what hit me the hardest because I realized, you know, these experiences are not just harmful physically, you know, they're not, not only do they feel afraid, anxious, threatened, you know, all these things came up, you know, imagine, you know, all these women are living their lives every day feeling afraid. Um, but not only that, but they're internalizing it to, to mean something about them, to, to mean that they're not good enough or there's something wrong with them. And, and that's a problem. That's so unfortunate, um, women internalizing that. And, you know, you think what implications does that have and really what attributes to, to it? Is it the misconceptions of Muslims today? Is it societal standards of beauty i mean we're talking about women there's always an ongoing trend of unrealistic beauty standards and how to look a certain way so is is it both you know it's hard to say i think um you know for especially the women of color 
um, who are also MENA American, um, this is this is this is very common, right? There's this internalization that you know the white beauty standards are what we should strive for, and even in our community, you know, there's all types of uh, creams, lightening creams, or straightening products, or all these different things that we do. And is it because we believe that that's most beautiful? Maybe. Is it because we want to pass? You know, we just want to live our life just, you know, just just walking down the street without looking, being looked at like we're weird or being um, pushed or, you know, be, you know, having someone scream at us. We just do we want to just pass? That's possible, too. Yeah, that is an interesting point. Maybe the case is to deter all attention, good or bad, away from yourself and actually kind of blend and be invisible because um, we do stand out and um, we are identifiable by the way that we look sometimes and uh, yeah that's probably that's probably actually it we do and you know like I think it's hard for me to admit but you know it's important for me to say that there's so many times in my life where I have these moments where I think wow maybe my life would be easier if I didn't wear hijab you know not that I don't want to wear hijab not that I, I love wearing the hijab and that's that's not, not something that I ever doubt but I think you know when I'm applying for PhD and it's so competitive and I feel like I'm not good enough, right? Or like I have to work so much harder just for someone to listen to me, just for someone to think, okay, she's worthy, right? Sometimes I think to myself, wow, like maybe if I didn't have hijab, people would just respect me. People would, you know, view me for me and not for all their assumptions. Because, you know, the assumptions that people have of Muslim women is, you know, first that they're somehow anti-American, right? And so they they want the destruction of America, which is, we all know, completely untrue, you know? And then second, it's, you know, that we're uh, oppressed, right? And that, you know, we're, un, you know, uneducated and, you know, we need, we need saving. We need, you know, we need to be saved. Um, and then the last thing is that, you know, we're, you know, strange, uh, exotic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to do so much with and for women like this podcast is uh, because maybe people aren't aware of the struggles Muslim women face. And, you know, you try to fit in in one bubble, then you exclude the other and vice versa. But um, our makeup is of both and they won't always be, you know, mutually exclusive, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, first first off, I want to say, like, I'm so proud of you for, you know, creating this platform and this podcast is so powerful. Right. And I think, you know, that you're giving me a chance to, you know, you're giving me a platform to talk about the work I do, you know, and that's so empowering. And you're doing that for so many other women. And I think that's we need more of that. You know, we need more of that, because if you give someone a platform, then they'll they'll come out of their shell, you know, and they'll blossom. They just need the opportunity. They need they need the space. They need the you know, someone to say, I care about what you have to say. I care about what you think. I want to hear what you think, you know. And to the second piece, um, I actually, I, this is really important because, and it's so important for me to mention at the beginning, and I, I forgot, um, is that when I asked about experiences of discrimination, the women didn't only talk about experiences of discrimination from non-Muslims. A majority of them talked to and talked about experiences of isolation and feeling ostracized by their own community. You know, like you said, you know, they're they're too American or they're not being Arab enough or they're not, um, you know, following the cultural norms. And so, you know, they're being judged for not wearing the hijab or not wearing the hijab in the way that someone wants them to wear it or not wearing, um, 
you know, not, not doing something in a certain way or not getting married when some, you know, their parents want them to get married, you know, sort of like pushing back. And I think for, you know, Muslim American women, this is so common because we have two cultures. We're bi- we're bicultural, right? That is just, that is the, there's, there's nothing to deny, right? Like that is our fact. And that's something we should be embracing. I love that I'm both Yemeni and American. You know, I think that's unique. That's something that, you know, it's, it's helped me to form my own identity. Um, but I think con- like, you know, constantly we hear from our families like, oh, stop acting American. You're being too American. And what they're really worried about is that we're going to go against, um, you know, our cultural traditions or we're going to, you know, um, you know, leave, leave our religion or, you know, leave them. You know, they're so worried because a lot of these parents are immigrants to this country. And so they came here for better opportunity but they, you know, didn't think in their mind, my daughter is not going to, she's not going to reflect me because she's not only Yemeni, she is Yemeni and American, you know? And so I think, you know, one part is that our families need to embrace us and accept us. And the other part is that we need to embrace ourselves, you know, just as you said. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like um, there's a disconnect between generations, especially if your parents are immigrants and you were born or raised in a Western society. Uh, because I was born in Yemen, um, but raised in California my whole life since I was two. So the disconnect lies between the reality for the child and their experiences and, you know, what the parents perceive it to be. I think a lot of parents have these standards um, they hold their children to and they think they share, uh, you know, a similar experience. So when they are, you know, quote unquote deviant, they see it as them straying or them fearing them losing their identity. And this is why I think communication is so important. And maybe at the beginning, you know, not between the child and the parent because that isn't going to be the most comfortable or easy to do right but at least within the community and you know it's leaders you know open these conversations discuss that you know the experience won't be the same and the expectations will not always be met and it's unfair to have those unrealistic expectations um you know the reality is is that it's just going to um push and you know drive a wedge between uh that parent and their child uh, we are in a mostly secular community. Yeah, totally, totally agree. So um, as we're talking, I was uh, taking notes and I know you said you wanted to be um, of service to your community. And I think we definitely need more therapists in our community, more um, people in the field of psychology um, for accessibility and someone who can actually be culturally sensitive and you know have that cultural competence to better service them without judgment, right? But in our culture we kind of shelter and hold back even sometimes within our own families uh, what we struggle with. So do you think that you'll run into issues with this as a Yemeni Muslim woman trying to, you know, serve a group of people that, you know, avoid airing their issues to someone from within their own community? Totally. I mean, I think I've had two experiences, right? There's the Muslim who sees me and is so ecstatic and so relieved, you know, and then there's the Muslim who's like, oh, no, she's Muslim. She might know someone that I know. I don't want her. I want someone who is the opposite of her. And, you know, I, I think I nor- I try to normalize that. And I think that's okay. You know, when you're choosing a therapist, you need to feel comfortable. And so if you don't, even if even though, you know, obviously there's a contract between me and, and the client and everything is confidential and I would, I would lose my job if I ever said anything, right? Even though I, that's part of it, I need them to feel safe. 
And so if, you know, if you're the type of person that does not feel safe with another Muslim counselor, then that's not the best fit for you. And that's okay. You know, there's several counselors who are not Muslim, but are culturally competent and, you know, are able and have gotten the, the education and have done the, the reading and have worked with the Muslim population before. So they have the experience, you know, so I'm not saying that I'm more competent than someone else. You know, I... It, please, I have, I still have things to learn. You know, I only have my experiences. I still have things to learn to be competent, but I think, you know, it depends on the person and, and what they want um, and, and what they think they're, you know, they would be more comfortable with. But I think one of the issues that, you know, you're kind of bringing up and I, I'm experiencing, especially as, you know, I graduate from my program and I start working full time is, um, you know, like the Muslim community is so small, you know, especially in New York. Right. And so I'm going to have multiple roles. Right. I might know someone and I might also, you know, be seeing their sibling in therapy, but I'm not allowed to tell them that. And so there's all these conflicting roles. And I think that's what kind of is unique about our culture um, and other ethnic and racial minority groups as well. And I think that psychology right now um, doesn't accommodate for that because, you know, the ethics code is very strict about boundaries um, and, you know, keeping, uh, maintaining, uh, you know, the multiple roles. But I think that the APA ethics code um, needs to change, you know, and, and accommodate uh, for, because it, it's not written in a way that actually reflects the experiences of ethnic and racial minorities. And actually, you know, the Native American population has actually taken that ethics code and written a completely new one just for a Native American population. And I think that's sort of something that I, I would love to see and I would love to work on in the future is, you know, how does that ethics code adapt? You know, it's, the ethics code is basically like our, our rule book. You know, we go back to it to know, you know, what, what we can do, what we can't do. And I think the, that ethics code needs to adapt to different um, ethnic and racial minorities because right now it doesn't reflect our experiences. So my last question for you, Sara, is... Um what advice would you have for someone going into this field? Or let's just say a field that's less favored by those around them? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think number one, um, you're not going to please everyone. You know, do what you believe and take the time to explain and to try to pass on the knowledge because I think our generation has been really privileged in that we have access to education. And so, you know, the other, the generations before us don't have that same access. And so, you know, to make sure that we're not arrogant, that, you know, we can humble ourselves and sit down and have a conversation. But at the same time, if you can't change someone's mind, move on, you know, and keep doing what you're doing because there are people who will support you. And the second thing is, you know, I think when I went into the field or, you know, I was the first in my family to graduate high school. I felt all alone and there was no mentors. You know, I didn't know who, I didn't even know what a mentor was. And I think reach out to people that are in the field and ask them questions. You know, they were in exactly where you were, where you are right now, right? So talk to people, you know, be, I, I remember a time where I used to be really shy and it would be so hard for me to like walk up to someone and just introduce myself. But you know what, get over it and do it because the more, the more connections you have, the, the better you'll feel and you'll, the more support you'll have. And, and if you have support, then you'll be able to accomplish whatever it is that you want. But really take advantage of the people who are around you, who are doing what you're doing, and talk to them. 
You know, I always leave my door open. And people constantly like message me and I'm so happy to meet up. I'm so happy to talk to you because I want, I know what it's like to feel alone and that's not cool, you know? MashaAllah, I'm, I'm so glad, um, you know, you've made yourself available in such a way. You are someone who has had a journey getting to where you are right now. And I think it's um, relatable, it's commendable, uh, and it's definitely inspired me. Um, and I hope it inspires a lot of young girls. And I hope they feel empowered, especially as a Yemeni woman. I am proud of your accomplishments. And I hope, you know, um, we girls continue to push the boundaries for the greater good towards something that we are really passionate about. And then, you know, use that to give back to those around us. Inshallah. Thank you, Sada, for taking the time to chat. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for, you know, making this platform. It's very powerful. And I completely support this. Thank you for listening in and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to like and follow this Muslim Girl podcast on all social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, check out the blog thismuslimgirl.com for all content information from this and all previous episodes. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.